Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Matt Van Italy of SEMA Software. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me, Scott. My pleasure. So we were we were just kind of exchanging emails, and I have an M&A background. And you were telling me what your software can do. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you got to come on the podcast. So can you kind of retrace your career a little bit and tell everyone how, how you had the idea for SEMA Software? Absolutely. And thanks again for having me. So I was a coder very early on, uh, literally with cassette tape memory, just to date myself a little bit, coding in Turtle Basic, but then went off to the organizational side and, and helping improve organizations. And so after a stint in consulting and then government, sec- uh, government service, I served in software companies. And the story of SEMA came about two big ideas at once, spending time with our software team. On the one hand, the CTO went into the CFO and asked for money for a service-oriented re-architecture. And I happened to see that conversation and you could see really nobody else in the room besides the CTO knew what a service-oriented architecture was, much less uh, how much it should cost and whether it was the right idea. Yeah, She was right, of course, the CTO, but it was really hard to explain to non-technical folks. And then the other part of the equation was watching my friends on the development team really slog through old legacy systems and trying to untangle the spaghetti code, we like to say. My experience, our experience is maybe one developer out of 20 really likes dealing with old code, but everybody else wants to create new. And probably the old code wasn't documented as well as it could have been. And it's so old that no, there's no one around on the team that you can talk to to actually help, help decode it. Exactly right. With all that turnover, it's incredibly hard to find a helper around to help. And so you combined, I saw those two factors at once. And truly, I looked at what was sitting across the table from the sales team. And with a push of a button from our CRM, we got that kind of information. In fact, nobody ever thought about it. It was so obvious. Of course, you knew the quality of sales and where you needed to dig deeper. You also knew the ways to coach individual salespeople. Yeah. You would never run an organization without a CRM, without kind of quantitative yep. data that everybody understood. Of course, CRM is code. And I was really flabbergasted when I thought about the analogy. Do you mean we have code that helps us understand and improve sales and salespeople? 
but we don't have code to help us understand code and coders, at least at the level that we would want, right? It just like totally didn't make sense. Yeah, someone should have ate their own dog food a little bit and built it, right? Exactly. That, that's that's an amazing leap because there's there's code for accountants to make accountants more effective and salespeople and pretty much every function. That's really funny. For the, the deep tech folks listening, there's an incredible piece called How to Write Unmaintainable Code. It's totally tongue in cheek about all the ways it's hard to be a software developer. But the kicker at the end uh, is called the shoemaker's sons have no shoes. And he's complaining that we're writing very complex systems with very rudimentary tools. The kicker yeah. is the piece is 20 years old, but could read exactly like it was written uh, yesterday. So I highly recommend yeah. it, how to write unmaintainable code. So that was the origin story of SEMA. And with the help of some fantastic engineers, uh, we went out and built it. And so what we have built is a business intelligence layer. And I actually do want to mention that point briefly. CRM, of course, is an incredibly important tool, but with non-trivial setup, taking all of the data from all its disparate places and then putting it together. It's both the analytics, but the underlying data. The yeah. beautiful thing, the amazing thing about doing this on code is that structured data already exists. So when I say business intelligence layer, it is... It literally sits on top of GitHub or Bitbucket or TFS or any of these version control systems. And so the shorthand of this is, what would you do if you had CRM-like data about code encoders tomorrow? And I really mean that. We set up takes 15 minutes of hands-on keyboard, and then processing takes an hour to overnight um, for medium-sized companies. It's all of the power of the insight uh, that you would get in a CRM without a three to 12 month implementation. Yeah. We were talking before we turned the mics on that, like what a gift GitHub is to you. Cause I, when we were talking about, it, I hadn't put it together that like that CRM example, like, yeah, we, when we switched over to Salesforce and had to load like all of our old mm -hmm. conversations, contacts, all that stuff in. And like, that wasn't just sitting there, but for your use case, it's, it's sitting there in GitHub, you know, yes. it's, and the legacy is sitting there too. It's pretty cool. Yes, and all of the, there are some, GitHub of course is very popular, but there are many other systems that folks are coding yeah. in and to do this right, you have to work across them, but absolutely it is structured data ready to be analyzed and ready to be analyzed quite easily. And so what our system does with that long intro, take this business intelligence layer and we actually look at the quality of the code, the quality of the development process, the contributions of developers, the intellectual property risk associated with the code, and the security of the code itself. And we put all of those pieces together through our reporting engine and can deliver reports. And of course, we're talking today because one of our most common use cases is using this in M&A. Yeah. Before we get to the M&A stuff, I also had, until we start talking now, hadn't put together that you could actually isolate the code of individual developers, which is like the story of like the 10x developer mm -hmm. that I read about on Twitter all the time. And, and we work with some really great people at Cruise. And I never thought about that, but your your software could actually determine who is a 10x developer or, you know, 5x. I'll take a 5x developer any day of the week, right? Kind of thing. But like, that's actually a really cool thought to, in the same way that like Salesforce tells me who the best salespeople are in our organization, you can actually determine who the best developers are. That's really powerful. So that's true. And it, it even goes a, a step further. First off, you're exactly right. And not only is this, is the data of code structured, but it's timestamped, 
and stamped yeah. by developer. So that's exactly how you do it, Scott. If you and I were coding together in the same part of the code, and I wrote the code, I wrote at time zero, and as a result of me and everyone that came before me, there were a hundred bugs in the system, and then you made changes to the code, you committed, and now all of a sudden there's 90, you took out 10 bugs, so we can attribute to you that you are a bug remover, and that attributes to skill. And so, again, one of the incredible things about the space, the measuring the productivity of developers has been around for a very long time. There's better and worse ways to do it. A lot of worse ways. Yeah. Someone wrote 10 lines yeah. of code. I mean, it used to be like lines of code, yeah. right? And then people realized that was wrong. Kind yeah, of there's an amazing Gilbert yeah. about a, a, a bug bash competition. And the person who wrote the most lines of code coded himself a minivan. I mean, you, it just it's just not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is not only a comprehensive picture that takes into the context. The context is absolutely key, but also a step further than what CRMs can do. The measurement of developers' contributions contains the specific coaching to help them get red, get them better. So it's not just, hey, you stole oh, less, wow. blah, blah, blah. It's, hey, Matt, using our previous example, hey, Matt, you introduced more bugs of this type Here's the line where you did it. Here's the kind. And so you can get better. And so, you know, the North, we absolutely have found a way to measure you know, developers' skill and contribution. The North Star is making the code better and make helping developers be better at their craft. And so it becomes yeah. a self-improvement and coaching tool as much as it is in situations like M&A or, or another popular use case is working with third-party development shops. Yeah. When you're working with an organization or you're coming in to do this, are you like, I could see that being a really strong pitch to the kind of top developers in the organization. Cause they're all of a sudden, maybe they're fighting for recognition or maybe aren't getting enough recognition or whatever. And all of a sudden there's this new tool that's going to tell everyone how great they are. I mean, are they, as are, is there customers putting that together? Or is that a little too, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid too much? Well, you're, you're very kind. And, and I'll tell a little bit more about my background. When I said I was in government service, uh, I had the pleasure of working with uh, urban school systems on data systems, putting in, in uh, systems to help understand uh, teachers and principals' impact on the levels of student learning. If you start the school year at the second, if everyone's reading at the second grade level and you end the year at the fifth grade level, there's some magic in that classroom that you really want to duplicate. So yeah. have uh, many years of battle scars of bringing in quantitative data to the field of education as it turns out, and I've uh, absolutely have come to believe this for very good reasons, uh, professionals who aren't used to having quantitative data are very, very skeptical, regardless of their quality level, and the uh, and for good reason that there's so many ways to use data about people the wrong way to miss the yeah, context yeah. to understand the operating environment. It's it's true in education, but it's super true in code as well. You know, there's a million examples if there's not a lot of unit testing, testing is a good way to make sure that the code is high quality, that very rarely has something to do with the development team. It has everything to do with the budget allocated oh. to the development team. And so yeah. uh, in fact, SEMA highly recommends staying away from um, using this on the developer side for ongoing usage uh, for a very long time. Just start first with helping get the code better Giving yeah, folks yeah, the yeah. tooling yeah. to save time and build new features instead of working on the past. The good news yep. is as they do that, the quality level, the code uh, improves and uh, developers can become better developers. Uh, we really do. It's a little bit paradoxical, but we, but we really do stay away from it for, 
for ongoing use. Uh, we, we don't think yeah. it's, it's, it's usually not fair to developers. That makes sense. And it's also, um, I mean, we've, we have a lot of quantitative scoring systems internally at Cruise. And you're right. Like when we first introduced that stuff, it was people got a little scared and nervous. And so I, I can totally see how that would work. But I think they probably are just by using it. Maybe they if they recognize it or not, they are getting better because they're seeing like, oh, my gosh, if I just use this one you know, different segment here, then I can get this done faster and it's more accurate. So that's 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 really neat. I mean, that's I, lo- I, lo- I feel like you're doing like money ball for uh, baseball players or something like that. Well, we, we definitely recognize the guys who take walks, yeah. you know, <laughs> we definitely use the, the sports analogy. Uh, you're, you're right to say it. And you think about playing basketball without a scoreboard. And then all of a sudden, a scoreboard is introduced. Sure, you could use that uh, at the individual level and keep track of individual stats. And of course, people do that, right? It's well established. Uh, but the first use case is keep track of how well your team is doing and the way that your team yeah. can get better. And that's that's the evolution of metrics like this. Start by yeah. the team contributions, the impact, and then you can work your way down. Because as you said, if your team is winning, you're obviously contributing to that. And that's, that's the place yeah. to start. Yeah, I love it. And then, so let's talk about the M&A use case because I used to do M&A and one of the observations we've had as a company at Cruise is that like a lot of venture capital funds, I used to work in venture capital too, so I know the whole industry. A lot of venture capital funds have kind of, they've raised bigger funds and now they're kind of like almost like uh, financial managers and less like due diligence providers. So like what you used to see in the old days was like the partner and the associate would due diligence all the numbers and all the product and everything. And now that that industry has gone to like the, the partners are just, they're trying to do deals. They don't really have time to do like the hardcore diligence. So what we see on our side is they're hiring like big four accounting firms. And so we kind of, it's not an adversarial relationship, but we're like we're going up against big four accounting firms all the time now in either M&A or in big rounds. And again, it's not adversarial. They're just like, they're doing what they should do. They're checking underneath the covers to make sure everything's done correctly and things like that. And so we, we actually like it because it's a nice validation for us. And so I was just like sitting there one day and someone had kind of talked to me about helping out in, in technology diligence. And then you and I were exchanging emails and I was like, like the light awakened in me because it seems like SEMA is like God's gift to technical due diligence for venture capital firms and even in M&A. Is, am I overstating that or... It seems like you guys have a really great value prop in that situation. Well, you're, you're very kind. And uh, it is, in fact, true. Uh, we do a lot of work in M&A, uh, fortunate to serve uh, Fortune 100 M&A teams, uh, some of the world's leading investors in companies that have software assets, whether or not they're software companies. And we do so both directly and in partnership uh, with great consultancies, uh, global consultancies and boutiques. Now that I've persuaded you of the CRM analogy for what we're doing, let me, let's play this out in the M&A case. Yeah. In 2020, for a company that had more than a million dollars of revenue, probably even less than that, you would never in a billion years buy it or invest in it unless you could both interview the head of sales, interview some customers, look at a couple contracts, talk to a salesperson or two, and you know where this is going, look at the yeah, CRM. Yeah. So an organization, yeah. again, tiny, no, but after a certain size, pretty quickly, having a CRM itself is an indicator that you've uh, reached a certain level. And the data is it's literally a deal breaker. You just simply wouldn't yeah. do it. 
yeah. SEMA sees ourselves very much as providing that quantitative data to supplement, not it, it's, it must be done in, in, in together, to supplement the great qualitative assessment to uh, of uh, internal teams, uh, if it's a tuck-in, a CTO, if it's a consultancy for external teams, but the two together are so much more powerful than either one yeah. alone. I love it. So you, so how does the flow usually work? Like you're working with a big consulting firm or you're working with the CTO and they maybe let the audience walk it. Like they pick up the phone, they call you, you come in mm -hmm. and how fast and how, how quick the results does it happen? Sure. High level first, it takes a week for small to medium companies from first conversation with the target to finished report, uh, medium companies to large two weeks, uh, up to two weeks. And sometimes even large companies, we can we can go that fast. So uh, part of our uh, amazing engineering team's work is to make this work incredibly fast uh, to meet the diligence timelines. A way that SEMA is able to do this is that we serve as a, a trustworthy third party. Uh, in fact, we do a lot of work on the buy side. We also do work on the sell side. The data Ooh. is the data. We like to say that we're Switzerland. If a company is getting ready for sale and they uh, enlist us, which happens, uh, we would say the same thing about them uh, as they would if we were representing a buyer. Of course, a seller doing this has an advantage of several months to get ready and adjust. Yeah, and that's actually really smart. I hadn't thought of sellers doing that. Mm -hmm. and, but you're right. Like when we have companies going in for a VC round or Dil or M and A, like we know. I mean, the good. The, this is the good companies. They're organized. They have a methodical path. They've scripted everything out, so they know like two months ahead of time or three months ahead of time. So you're right. A seller or a startup that's going to go through technical build that you don't can actually use your software to prep for that. Yeah. And not only have an explanation for shortcomings, and of course, all no code is perfect. So you might have a lot of core yeah, principles. Yeah. Every company should have tech debt. Otherwise, you're spending too much time making the code perfect and not enough about yeah. features. And in particular, early stage companies should have a lot of it. And all of the, you know, what makes it so fun is the code quality is contextual, which means earlier stage companies may have achieved the functional requirements, but actually have lower quality code, that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. So sometimes it's yep. just having the explanation ready. We have a traffic light system and it's a little bit unnerving to see page after page of reds and oranges for higher risk, but once you know it and you can explain it, 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 goes, a lot, it goes a lot easier. And when there's substantive issues on uh, developer activity or security risks or uh, unexplained sharp changes in the amount of work, which you'd be surprised how often that comes until it can be explained, sellers have an advantage as well. Yes, for sure. So COVID, of course, we've been doing a lot of work in uh, this spring, and we see the COVID dip. Uh, in the United States, every single target or uh, company getting ready for sale had a 25 to 75% de decrease in developer activity in February, March, or April. Uh, insane. Are you kidding me? I never thought about yeah, that. You can absolutely see it right in the system. And I mean, the data as one of our, uh, as one of our targets just said uh, recently, the data doesn't lie. You, the question is, what is the context driving it? Uh, there's always also a holiday dip, but now we, we just saw the COVID dip. It's non-explained discrepancies uh, that are, that are really challenging. Uh, yeah, I'll tell yeah, you one of, yeah. one of my favorite stories. We were doing a diligence and it looked like there was a about a 20% decrease uh, for about three months in the amount of coding being done relatively close to the acquisition period, which makes everybody nervous, of course. Yeah. SEMA, long story short, in, in that week, 
uh, we get permission to analyze the code, we analyze the code, we write up the report, and then we sit down and explain it with our client back to the target. Our, we come from a place of humility and curiosity, and of course, building code is an amazing, magical thing, and there are always reasons. The question is, understanding those reasons and what does it mean for uh, a potential going forward, you know, for a company to be acquired. So yeah. we were looking at this co company, which had a, a about a 20% decline for about three months. Uh, and then it picked up and, and we said, guys, help us understand. It what looks happened? like, yeah, what happened? Looks like roughly speaking a 20% decline for three months. And you, you know, this is on zoom these days and the, and the targets team looked around and said, Oh yeah, uh, we took Fridays off uh, for three months uh, as a cost-saving measure. So literally, there was a three-month period where it was exactly twenty percent reduction. That's amazing. So, That's stories amazing. Stories aren't always perfect, but but they lead to that conversation. And again, always grounded in curiosity. Uh, I don't want to, you know, there's sellers. I, I, we tell the truth. Buyers, we're here to say we tell the truth. And really, big picture. About 10% of the deals fall through because there's major risks in the code and yeah. it's, it's not yeah. worth it. So that's about, that's on the risk reduction side. And then 90% of deals that go through, we take three to 12 months off of integration or value free. Wow. I hadn't thought of that either. And again, and how, and why, why is that? Because the buyer understands the code base so well going into it and knows the weaknesses and strengths or are you giving that report over to the seller and then they're like, okay, we can fix some of this stuff or we can, you know. So imagine you were running a 250 person sales organization and you did not have a CRM and all of a sudden yeah. we handed to you and said, make it better. You would know yeah. the people to who should be coaches to everyone else. You would know which verticals you should be focusing on to improve. You would know which processes needed to be tighter. It gives you a literally a roadmap to help improve the code, the process, the team that otherwise, you know, takes months, years to build that, that subject matter expertise. That's, that's just amazing. Amazing. Wow. This is, this is super cool. Who's your ideal customer? Is it like private equity firms, VC firms? Is it consulting firms? You work through the channel? Like, how do you, how do you like to work? Sure. So we are, we are truly agnostic about who we work with, um, with the really important caveat that this report does not work standalone. That's an important principle. Yeah. to do right by the craft of software development. You can't just look yeah. at the report and make a decision. So someone yeah. uh, associated with the buyer needs to provide the qualitative assessment that could be uh, a CTO of a, of a company doing a tuck-in. It could be a, a value creation team uh, or an M&A team. Uh, and it definitely could be consult uh, consultancies. We love working with them uh, where they get to do their best work of client management and the deep dives and we get to do what we do well, which is the analytics supporting them. So we we really are yeah. agnostic about that. That's amazing. And so there was a second use case that we were talking about, which was just the the third party software developers. And like full disclosure, like we have a group that we work with. That's we're, we've been very fortunate. Like I think we got a little bit lucky to be honest with you, and just found some great people. But we've we've automated big portions of like our accounting work which saves us so much time. It's like ridiculous. I still can't believe we did it. But like, like I told you, I think before we turn the mics on, I don't really have the skill set to go in there and audit like their code base. And we have some friends and our former CIO, Britt, will do that occasionally. Shout out to Britt. But I think this is a really interesting idea for people who, because pretty much everyone, like I see at Cruise, we can see what people are spending money on. And almost everyone's, even if you have a development team, you're working with some third-party folks too to supplement it. I mean, the, how does, how does that process work? Yeah. 
Uh, you're exactly right. Our, besides M&A, the most common use case is helping, helping manage third-party development shops. Not unlike SEMA works with buyers and sellers on M&A, we work both with buyers of third-party development services and uh, forward-looking innovative consultancies, boutiques, and yeah. global firms. Again, we're Switzerland. Again, maybe unlike Switzerland, whoever goes first has a first mover advantage to explain the code, to have the story, frankly, to compare for, for uh, providers of third-party development shops to uh, compare their own work to previous consultancies, because this is all an archaeological dig. We can go back seven firms back and point out. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I love the archaeological yeah, dig. You can really, you can really see. Uh, we saw a a minute segue on a, a very tactical topic for the folks who really love yeah. digging into this. Uh, we actually helped a client, a uh, 20-year-old client software company, had had eight different software external software development shops helping them. And we all of our work, we always do the full history because it helps understand where you're going, even if you're not working with these firms. And we help point out to them the sixth oldest company, so one that they had worked with 10 years ago, was delivering in very low quality code. It happened that it was a low low cost bid winner, and that's not uncommon yeah. when we when we find situations like this. And there's a uh, there's an amazing miners canary statistic where if you find this out about your third party shop, third party shops, you should be listening and fix this as soon as possible. You should run away screaming. Uh, you should run away screaming. And that is when we talked about coding and knowing who's coding. Some third party development shops share the login to the version control system. Oh, yes. God. Oh, God is yeah. the right answer. Amongst all the developers. So you couldn't scrutinize the individual developers. Correct. That's a, a secondary uh. effect. The primary effect, it is a massive security breach for yeah. no good reason. Yeah. The analogy we say it's like a bank sharing IDs for their security for their security guards, right? The risk yeah. is so high for the cost of a yeah. badge, it's it's it really is the miners canary. So if you ever find that, yeah. thankfully it's very rare, you should change firms. Less rare uh, are some other shortcomings uh, of uh, of software development shops. And I think the thing that we're most excited about is it it, it brings a level of uh, metrics and, and quantitative assessment so that both sides can look together. We said coding yeah. is contextual and about if there's not enough testing, that could be a financial decision. That's absolutely true. It may even be more true uh, with external shops who are asked to deliver functions under a certain price, et cetera, with, and cut corners on quality. I was going to say, because a, a lot of them get forced into bidding situations where it is the lowest bid. So I'm sympathetic, you know, like for us, the, we're not the lowest cost provider. I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty darn cost effective, but like you could offshore our work to someone for five bucks an hour and get terrible work, but you would think you were, you know, and it's, Again, if there's no clearinghouse, if there's no like analytics layer to say like, hey, that five bucks an hour place is terrible, you just don't know if you're if you're a newbie like like me, you know. Okay. So I can have you guys ever thought this is just a crazy idea, but I I one of my best investments when I worked in venture capital was Angie's list. And they basically had kind of a seal of approval. Mm -hmm. And that seal of approval got pretty big. And so like have you guys introduced any of that kind of stuff where you have like Hey, this this shop that Scott works with, and the shop down the street, there are different grade levels or seals of approval. We haven't rolled it out formally, but indeed we do. Uh, oh, we, we're, we're breaking news on, on, the, on, the, on podcast. the podcast. So yes, yeah, SEMA has third-party shops, a select number, were rigorously screened, who not only use our metrics and we're proud of them, but it's it's less about the metrics than it is uh, they 
commit to a quantitative approach to continuous improvement. Yeah. Again, yeah. you everyone listening is sick of this analogy. Would you hire an outsourced uh, BDR team that didn't put their data into a CRM? No, of course not. Yeah. Right. All of this. Yeah. So it's yeah. the process for a shared conversation to get better. Yeah. I think also what you're saying is the willingness to look hard at yourself and actually analyze yourself and see if you're doing a good job is probably half the battle. You know, the good firms are willing to do that and they probably pick up and learn a bunch, but the firms that don't want to do it are the ones you might want to stay away with, stay away from, you know? There's probably some real truth to that. We can certainly say that the folks who've, who've passed our test are open and self-critical and uh, eager to use that data to improve themselves. And so that's, that's why we are so confident recommending yeah. them. It, to answer your question, how does it work? Expression, it tastes like chicken. Uh, it actually is true here. Literally any code anywhere, as long as we have the version control history, we can quickly set it up, quickly analyze it. There's an ongoing dashboard. And then we write uh, a report or our consulting partners write a report. Wow, that's cool. Well, kudos to you, man. You built a really cool service and a really cool company. I'm really happy. I mean, again, I used to do M&A and we're knee deep in the we have four public company M&A deal, deals happening with cruise clients right now. So like the level of scrutiny is so high. That's kind of that's where my head's at right now. So like it, it was it was perfect timing just to, to hear about what you guys are doing. Can you can you and so we should probably wrap this up. But can you tell everyone how to reach out to you, where to go and SEMA spelled with an S, S-E-M-A. Right. Can you tell everyone where to find SEMA and how to just maybe it's LinkedIn, maybe it's an email, how to get a hold Absolutely. of you? Absolutely. So. Uh, you can always go to SEMA software, S-E-M-A software.com. Happy to talk to you directly. I am M-V-I, Matt Van Italy at SEMA software.com. Also let your listeners know, I think I'm allowed to do this. We're happy to do a free proof of concept. I'm sure many of you are thinking, oh, yeah. or sounds like magic if it works, but does it really work? And no better way than to try it with code you know. So uh, please feel free to reach out. We obviously live and breathe this stuff and uh, thrilled to have more conversations. So please, uh, please hunt us down. It's such a perfect, I mean, the CRM analogy really works for me too. Cause, cause I, I'm embarrassed to say for the first, I mean, Vanessa started cruise eight years ago and I joined five and a half years ago up until about 18 months ago, we were not using Salesforce. <laughs> and so we actually had a Salesforce subscription for many years. So we just didn't use it. Uh, cause we, it was like buying the, the weight watchers, you know, book or something like that. We knew we, we were smart enough to know we should be doing it. We just weren't doing it. And so I, I just know how much visibility we have in the organization sales and like, gosh, it's such a great analogy. Like your GitHub should be plugged into SEMA so you can actually see what's happening and, and have that scorecard. It's really cool. And of course there's activation energy in trying out a new process, of course, but at least there's no work. So you talk yeah. to me. You guys do it automatically tomorrow and then you can start figuring out how to use it and, and change processes. So man, that's way better than Weight Watchers. <laughs> but you, yeah, that's Scott, awesome. thank you so much. What I mean, a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. And everyone check out SEMASoftware.com. Awesome job, Matt. Thanks. Thank you again. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise. Founders and friends. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Old.